Accelerating careers in real estate with Nick Carman. This evening, I'm sat with Jan Trubijan, Design and Technical Director for Northacre. As an architect and now design director for a developer synonymous with the superprime market, Jan has portfolio of projects under his belt, some of the world's most exclusive addresses, including One Palace Street, which counts Buckingham Palace as its next door neighbour. So Jan, I asked you before our conversation to, to try and plan and think ahead of your career in chapters. So to kick us off, how does chapter one begin? Good evening, Nick. I suppose chapter one really is uh, an amalgamation of the high school university years that end up being quite formative for uh, for an individual. It's essentially it's a, it's a young man who aspires to be a, a, a surgeon all his life, uh, deciding after high school that he simply refuses to spend a life in clogs and a white lab coat and is rifling through a university selection brochure and um, happens upon architecture. Quite an unglamorous start, but um, fundamentally, as someone who's quite good at languages, biology and you know all things social and science, you know, I end up thinking what would be really good is if I polished up on the technical bits that I'm not so savvy at. So uh, the, the architecture school journey begins and it's actually quite a quite a long journey because it's it sort of meanders between architecture and then second thoughts going back to medicine and then trying to expand into graphic design product design lighting design and then essentially ending back um at, you know the most exquisite of them all which is which is architecture and um to be honest the entire journey and something that we'll probably touch on more as we go on is just the you know the privilege and the and the luck of having uh, teachers in life that sort of end up steering you in certain directions that at the time you don't even realize and then in retrospect you end up being incredibly grateful to so architecture is at least for me it wasn't a very easy journey to start off with because there's a lot of very complex interfaces that one has to master and i suppose the uh, the challenge really was in trying to fit all that into a young head that was preoccupied by you know other things so the journey includes a lot of stints with working for smaller practices you know for six months here a couple of months here for you know various local architects just to get a sort of flavor to see if that's where i want to end up and then graphic design event management you know just a sort of a, a sort of a searching journey that then ends under the mentorship of the man who actually allowed me to enroll into uh, the university, which was uh, the, the Dean of Admissions at the time. And I sort of started off with him giving us the first speech at the faculty. And then I did my thesis with him, which was liberating as the school that I attended was quite restrictive. It's an it's a architectural degree where they teach you, you know, everything from the basics of Vitruvius to space planning, to facade articulation, to how to install and commission a fan coil unit. So there's a lot to take in in the seven years of the program. And I suppose the journey really begins sort of at at the end of this phase where I'm in the studio of this man of this slightly rigid institution who allows me to do for my graduation thesis, allows me to do a competition in Brazil, which was to design the Olympic Tower for the Rio de Janeiro Games. And, And that, you know, you sort of enter a world of very vivid culture and you can really draw inspiration for architecture from that. 
and the product of about a, you know a year's worth of work and research is this tower of these two dancers interweaving with each other and that sort of opens you know opens the perspective on what architecture and uh, you know design and development in real estate really is it's a it's an ability to you know go places and explore society in in a way that very few professions allow and that really is what cements my my journey and that sort of first chapter as you as you as you call it and of course those first chapters are spent in the in the capital of slovenia that's right ljubljana yes now i I consider myself a bit of a a bit of a patriot and a a big fan of the uk and i think it's i think the uk can be a bit victim sometimes a bit of arrogance thinking that well of course everyone wants to come and study here and everyone wants to come and work here particularly in london but you tell me, what was it that was about London in particular that eventually got you wanted to come and work here? Well, the trouble with Slovenia or the challenge that I experienced personally was the fact that if you're in a field like architecture or you know law or medicine or you know finance, because the, the capital Ljubljana is about 350,000 people. So you end up in a, in a professional clique that's a couple of hundred strong at best, which means that you're more or less surrounded with... Um, faces that you know and sometimes know quite well and there is perhaps i mean obviously this is just my personal experience and this is the way i lived it there's perhaps a slightly limited ability to learn and and grow because you're not exposed to you know different cultures different ways of doing things uh, situations that challenge you to a degree that they would in a in a place like london so really it's about seeking further betterment further challenges and um, at the end of the day to deliver and be involved with uh, schemes that are complex and interesting and allow you to explore all the different facets of of architecture and design. I wanted to ask sort of how how easy was it for you to make that transition to to London and and secure that first role because timing wise you haven't picked the best year it's 2009 isn't it with we're one year post the GFC Real estate was was not a particularly warm place for graduates, no matter what discipline. Yeah, I suppose the um, the, the beginnings were very difficult and uh, fraught with challenges, but also a, a really dynamic and and fun time. So my 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 mother was doing a PhD at the UCL in London between 1990 and 90, uh, So I'd, I'd spend some of my formative teen years in London. And then having been removed from that environment back into Ljubljana, you know, there, there really was no other place that I would consider coming to or going to other than London. I had done a stint in, in Japan and I had visited, you know, obviously other capitals. And I don't know, I, I guess London was just a visceral connection that remained from, you know, the teen years. So essentially after uni, it, was, it wasn't even a question of uh, where I was going to go it was you know london or bust pretty much timing wise <laughs> it sort of it helps if you're a, you know uh, if, if you're an optimist and i hadn't actually realized the enormity of the crisis in 2009 when i first moved back to london because at the time the crisis had hit in you know places like uh, france and the uk and obviously the states but it was a long way off coming to some of the more ancillary states further south so I was leaving a happy place to come to what I thought was a happy place, only to realize that in 2009, people in London, especially architectural practices, weren't really interested in, in hiring <laughs> uh, because it was, you know, obviously they'd just come out of a recession. There was no stability. 
And it was a very difficult eight months. So the journey was probably, you know, around about 900 to 1,000 CVs sent in that time. I mean, I probably developed carpal tunnel several, several times during those eight months. <laughs> and it was, um, it was a, I think brain melting is definitely a phrase that I could use to describe that period. And in fact, what had happened was, obviously, I tried the usual routes, you know, direct contact with practices, going to recruiters, and somehow that didn't, that didn't bear much fruit. So I ended up, it was, I think it was in June, May or June, during one of the design weeks, I ended up, you know, resolving myself and visiting all these practices to to see if I could get to know someone, I could chat to someone, see what their, you know, what their requirements were, etc. So I was going to these practices, picking up these um, these marketing brochures that they do, right? So, sure enough, Square and Partners had a had a street party event organized, which you know is it really is something that's synonymous with the Square and Partners, which is a, a brilliant practice in terms of you know obviously architecture, but then also uh, social life. So I end up picking this brochure. Um, you know, I, I come home, I put it on a on a stack with the, all the rest of the brochures. And then, at, you know, at one point during an evening, I'm, I'm flicking through these brochures and suddenly I'm, I find that the practice is actually working on a, on a residential scheme, medium-sized residential scheme in Slovenia. So sure enough, I, you know, I resend the CV, but, you know, at the time, as we said, no one's hiring. So what do you do? You know, I end up taking a holiday back home. And sure enough, I, I say, you know what, I'm actually going to go visit this site, see if I can find the person or the director that, that's relevantly and directly responsible for it and see if I can go knock on that particular door. Sure enough, a friend of uh, mine and myself end up going to this site and end up talking to one of the locals who uh, turns out to be uh, ardently opposed to the construction of this scheme. And he, you know, he, he walks out with a stack of plans and sure enough, there I am in the middle of Slovenia, looking at a stack of plans from, you know, Squire and Partners. And, you know, in the revision bubble, I end up picking up who the responsible directors and associates were. And sure enough, an email goes out directly into their inbox, you know, two days later. It turns out that I had emailed one of the partners directly and uh, apparently piqued his curiosity by the directness of, of the approach. And I was invited for an interview a couple of days later. I arrived to the interview you know, all very professional, as you'd expect a architectural practice interview to be. And at the time, having done my, my tower in Rio, I was um, quite involved in the parametric design and then the 3D conceptualizing of architecture, at which point the practice obviously is uh, nascent in its beginnings of, of BIM and, and 3D. And uh, the, the people who understand this best are the CGI department. So they bring out uh, they bring out a chap from the CGI department to look at my 3Ds and to critique them, and and the the guy comes across as uh, as you know slightly dismissive and and arrogant obviously because he's looking for, you know CGI quality whereas I'm showing him architectural concepts, so he, you know we end up leaving that interview on a, on a on a positive note but there's something niggling about you know the guy having said, this isn't quite the level that we're after in this practice, so. I go home a little bit disappointed, and just as I arrive home, I go over for a drink with a friend. In the middle of that drink, I say to myself, do you know what? I'm, that's not how it's going to go. So I end up going home and uh, scouring the Square and Partners website for a tower that they had done, which was a concept design for, for a location in London. And I end up modeling and rendering that tower, working through the night to, to make it possible. And uh, the next morning, I assembled it all into a brochure, and at seven o'clock, it's in it's in the partner's inbox. 
you know, just to prove a point and to thank them for a, a lovely interview and see if there's any prospects there. Again, you know, three or four days later, I get an email back to say, you know, when can you start? So, you know, phenomenal opportunity and uh, a successful eight month journey. What do you think impressed them most? Was it your modeling skills? Was it the, the drive or the determination or the, just the sheer gumption? Well, the man that I emailed is, uh, is, is still a partner of the practice, Tim Gladstone, and a, a very talented architect and, uh, and a very creative personality. And I remember he, he often said to me, you know, at some of the socials that we had, that it absolutely was the drive. The fact that, you know, someone essentially critiqued some of my work and that there was basically a drive and a commitment to show that what was being presented wasn't something that just popped out of nowhere, but there was actually a bit of background to what I'd been saying to them. And the fact that I'd spend the night up and produce this brochure overnight, I guess, made an impression on Tim who, you know, as as anyone in the architectural business will tell you, the willingness to work nights and weekends is something of a prerequisite to ever being allowed into the club. So Jan, what was your impression of the UK architectural practice? You know, what, what drove you to think now you're in the door? What do you think you were looking for in those earlier years at Squires? I think when you when you end up switching environments the way I did, you initially are doing a lot of learning, a lot of observing and a lot of adaptation or adapting to a, to a, to a new environment. So I think the main driver when arriving at the practice was the unbelievable devotion of people expending their life forces at putting together brilliant pieces of architecture. And I suppose I was in awe of the drive and the willingness to commit so much energy into the field. And that's something that encouraged me enormously to validate this opportunity by uh, essentially repaying the practice and the, the effort of the architects in the practice with my own endeavours in, in so much as I could contribute. Now, I, I spoke to one of the senior directors at Squires, or at least one of the senior directors during your tenure, and they described you as very ambitious. But then they went on to caveat that and they said, ambition can bring some challenges for managers when the individual can't always back it up. But what made Jan very different was that he showed the resilience and the drive to meet his own ambitions. And that made him quite unique. Where did you get that drive from? Or where did you get that confidence from? I suppose confidence is something that I've uh, I've never lacked, as uh, the chap has correctly alluded to. I suppose it's making mistakes and having the opportunity to, again, have the teachers that put up with your mistakes, balance that off against the the hard work and the, the willingness to learn, that makes the experience rewarding for both parties. So I suppose one of the first jobs that I was project architect of at Squire and Partners was a medium-sized development on Grosvenor Street. And I'd worked at the time with a chap called Martin O'Leary, who's still a director at the, at the practice. And the kindness uh, the man demonstrated in taking this over-eager, willing to learn and willing to invest the, the time that was required into this learning, and at the same time, having, having this enormous patience with, you know, recognizing the enthusiasm there requires some of this learning that he was willing to impart. And there are several 
chapters within, you know, having worked and lived at the practice practically for for uh, almost eight years, that they're sort of interwoven together with a combination of people giving you autonomy to do things, allowing you to make mistakes and be there to catch you when you fall. And that is something that I will be forever indebted to the practice as a whole, but specifically some of the individuals that I've I've worked with there. Let me ask you a question then about architectural practice as a, as a whole. I think the architectural practices typically have a reputation of being quite autocratic. You have these big personalities, uh, often who are leading the practices, and then they have sort of armies of more junior staff who are often enacting their vision or their will. I wondered how comfortable a place that was for you when we've discussed it as being as being very ambitious. I think when you're first starting out, you don't really see the wood for the trees. It takes a couple of years to realize what it means to be working in a consultancy. It takes a couple of years to, to learn about the structures that are in place. And I think at, at the beginning, at least my journey certainly was one where I like to think you overcome difficulties with rigor and ardor of just getting it done. And I think that in a way is a formative journey because you're sort of, you're walking through a forest and all you're seeing is trees. You're seeing problems that you need to resolve. It's all sort of very near field. And I think as you spend a bit more time and do a couple of projects and and you, you start to learn the ropes. I mean, one of a brilliant professor at university said to me once or said to us once, said, you're you're not really an architect uh, before you're 50, no matter what you do, because you need to go through a process. There's a lot of magic that is woven or there's an ability to weave magic that's required in an architect. And you need to go through certain steps to be able to start, you know, wielding and interweaving all those bits of magic. And I think at the beginning, you're so focused on individual, at least I was focused on, on, you know, solving individual problems. The vertical and hierarchical structure that you mentioned wasn't really a problem because you're, you know, again, you're focused on solving problems. Where I think things start to break down slightly is when you're, you know, when you're a couple of years in, maybe four, five, six years in, and you start to realize that your professional growth has gotten to a point where you need to be exposed to different challenges as opposed to being a productive member of the team and enacting, as you say, someone else's will. Obviously, you're given opportunity to enact your own will in in, in smaller parts of, of this process. But it really stops, at least for me, my journey was at some point, it stopped being as challenging as it could have been. And it's started feeling like all you're doing is going from one deadline to the next. And then you start to zoom out a little bit. And if you go back to this journey through the forest, you suddenly start to see the, the forest and you're starting to see, okay, there's the beginning of the job. There's the feasibility, you know, there's the technical information bit, and then there's the actual construction bit. And as you're zooming out, you're starting to realize how you've been formed by these roles. And then you start to see there are interesting things in this forest that pique your your curiosity. The strategic decisions on why a job gets built, where it gets built. You suddenly start to realize that architecture isn't just about conceiving and constructing a building. It's also about assessing the viability of a building's existence. And then there's a whole aftermarket to the architecture that you do, which is the use, who uses that, the target demographics. And, and you suddenly realize that architecture is far broader than just building a building. Certainly for me, the journey was that you realize that the architecture actually grows into real estate. 
if a piece of real estate, if a piece of architecture sort of has five phases, which is the financial concept phase, and then you've got the planning, which then goes into, you know, design and the more technical design and then construction and then use. If you've got five of these phases, as, a, as an architect practicing in a consultancy, you're only really exposed to three out of these five phases. And then as an architect, as a personality, you are curious about the other aspects of what makes a building tick. And that really is something that whether you classify it as ambition or curiosity or wanting to be exposed to the entire uh, life cycle of the, of the building, you know, there's a overused trope, which is, you know, this cradle to grave. And going back to the forest analogy, what is cradle to the grave for a piece of architecture? For me, that's all the five phases, not just the three phases that the architects are directly involved with in a consultancy. So I suppose ambition here is, you know, really a, a curiosity to learn about all the aspects of the building and be exposed to a more strategic view of developing and designing and ultimately constructing a real estate. And I think you've very articulately described how I see people's careers. We're either accelerating or we're consolidating. You've been dropped into the deep end in those early years then with, with squires and had to learn and develop those skills really, really quickly. You've then been then honing those skills, but it's the what next, right? It's the, it's how do I, how do I learn more? How do I learn the other two areas of real estate that I'm not exposed to at the moment? And I suppose you could have taken your career in a couple of different directions, couldn't you? You could have, you know, that you could have sort of stayed at sort of squires and continued to climb the climb the ladder there as well. You might well have chosen an, another consultancy type environment. But what was it then about a role with the client that was particularly unique, or was that was particularly alluring? I suppose the element of personal, professional, and by that extension career development. I suppose I'll just go back to what I said earlier. It's a, it's a curiosity about all the ancillaries that surround the actual formation of the architecture. I suppose when you've spent in excess of 15 years designing buildings, understanding how they're put together, perhaps it's, it's worthwhile mentioning a very formative experience for me that was outside of the consultancy it was a, it was an experience of of going to venice they've got um they've got these um these biennales right so it's a they they do it biannually to do arts and then to do architecture and i think it was around 2014 there was a biennale that was directed and curated by uh, rem kulhas from the oma fame and the biennales are usually a parade of excellent architecture and you know you, you go in and you sort of you feast your senses on on all the genius that humankind is capable of. But what singled out this particular one was a, a very basic approach to designing a building, which was it took elements of the building, like a window, like a MEP installation, like the, a wall, and it broke them down into constituent parts. And I remember walking around and you had a partition wall, which is a very basic you know, architectural element. And there was sort of a history of how the partition wall developed. And just the fact that you had the entire spectrum of going from, you know, mud to a dry lined wall and everything in between just really brought it, brought it to life. So it, in a way, that was a sort of a, that was a light bulb moment of what, you know, a, a more technical aspect of the architecture is. And I guess that's what sort of sparked an interest in that, okay, if there's so much in architecture 
contained in, in building a building, what about the parts that you don't see? How do I learn or how do I get exposed to what the conceptualizing, the feasibility and the viability stages of a scheme? How does a, you know, how does an investor come together with a developer? How do those relationships work? And why do those relationships then impact what we do as architects in such a fundamental way? And again, it's curiosity, it's understanding architecture as a whole. And that really was not something that I would be able to get the exposure that I thought that I wanted in a, in a consultancy. So it was an extension of that curiosity, or call it ambition, I, I don't know, to learn holistically about this thing that you spent years practicing and to see the beginning of it. So that's the, you know, the cradle bit. And then, you know, the grave bit, which let's face it, that's something that architects love to put in their CVs, you know, experience from cradle to grave. Okay, great. But where do you define the cradle? Where do you define the grave or the, or the use? So the tail end of it, the use, the, the handovers after practical completion, the journey for the architect pretty much ends at practical completion. And then, you know, there's a little bit of an encore with the defects periods, but it's, a, it's sort of an appendix. And really, you know, there's there's so much going on after handover and people coming in and starting to live in these spaces and trying to make them make it their own. Can I can I stick a Picasso on that wall? Can I can I put a chandelier in the middle of the ceiling? You know, these are all very, very detailed elements of architecture that usually end up being picked up by various handover managers or, you know, sales agents. And really, for me, that is integral to what, what an architect should be able to do, the, the entire spectrum of putting together a, a, a functional building. Well, Jan, you're teeing up really nicely now, I think, as, as we move into this next chapter of acceleration as you, uh, as you join Northacre. I've just got one question I wanted to ask you about, and this isn't necessarily focused to your squire's career, but I spoke to one of your current colleagues who was actually one of your clients, when I asked him about you, he said one of my sort of earliest sort of memories of Jan is when he was sat in a design meeting and he was maybe number two or number three in that meeting. But I remember him because he outshone other colleagues because he was someone who never failed to pull his punches. Now, I I wanted really to ask, has that ever got you in trouble? It definitely has, Nick. In fact, it's probably one of the the major virtues and at the same time flaws that you know, I personally have had to grapple with. I think the the manner and the, and, the, and the frustration in how I, on a personal level, deal with challenges that need to be resolved in order to enable the, a project to, to move on in my personal life, as well as in my career, problems are often very complex, nebulous balls of em- emotions and technical and environmental challenges. And I suppose what has served me really well through, throughout my, my life and career is a almost simplistic way of articulating a problem and pulling out the, the, the crux of the problem from this nebulous ball of all these ancillaries that surround it. And I think I've identified a problem. I start to think I like to dissect it and you know resolve it piece by piece. The, the trouble with that is that you're in situations where it's not in people's interest to solve a problem. It's sometimes in people's interest to sit on a problem or to try to, you know, sort of sweep it under the carpet or not to deal with it face on. And that's something that I struggle with enormously. And I've never really had much time for resolving problems by letting them simmer and seeing if they're going to go away. 
I think for, for me and MO has always been, you see a problem, you see a challenge, you, you take it head on and you, you deal with it. And I've been, you know, privileged and lucky enough in, in my life to perhaps have an, an ability to do this in a manner that's, you know, very direct and, and very forthright, which allows me to break down a problem, take it apart, and then share my findings with whoever I'm interacting. And sometimes this sort of scalpel approach and the way I tend to present these things for the sake of efficiency doesn't go down very well. I think ultimately the, the, the drive is to, to move whatever issue you're facing with, move, move it on and deal with it and not to let it fester. And I think sometimes people struggle with, you know, being able to deal with someone who's so keen on taking, you know, pulling a problem apart that seems unconscionable to them and then tries to resolve it in, in quite such a expedient manner. And I think that's where that's where the friction comes in. And that's that certainly has has got me into trouble. And again, you make mistakes and, uh, you know, again, to fall back onto cliches, you you learn from them. And sometimes, you know, some of us end up having a very thick skull and you, you have to make the same mistake over and over again uh, to to, you know, learn from it. And so far, it's proven to be uh, an invaluable tool because there are always people around that want a expedient solution to the problem. And those people tend to be people in executive places where they don't have time to get mired in the detail. They need to see a problem or an issue or, or a challenge concluded quite quickly to move on. And that's sort of where I've always had a, had a sympathetic sounding board. And the project you're referring to 20 Grosvenor Square was uh, one such uh, project where the client had a job they were trying to deliver and they ended up bringing in an operations team who are ex-contractor background. And, you know, that's a culture shock for, you know, someone who's brought up in university, you know, privileged background. Suddenly you're dealing with these very sort of hard-nosed and, and direct people who are quite simplistic about where they want to get and how quickly they want to get there. So that was a formative experience for me, having been exposed to people that have, you know, as Doug likes to say, you know, poacher turned gamekeeper. I mean, I felt like I was in a Western movie sometimes, you know, I'd sort of been, I'd sort of been a ballet dancer trying to find elegance in, in spatial coordination and, and planning and the beauty of a facade. And suddenly along comes this guy that says, well, you know, how are you going to build that? You know, what are you going to do? Are you going to fill it with bentonite? You know, come on, come on. Where's the solution, Mr. Architect? I don't have a week. And I'm there going, well, hang on a second. I need a week to solve this. And the guy says, well, you know, you don't have a week. You've got, you know, three hours. So, so what are you going to do? And that's where I guess that was a very hard lesson of being exposed to a sort of very primal force that is driving construction and contractors. It was a massive lesson in, in a way, exacerbating the requirement for me to be as direct as I possibly could be, because what I thought was being direct and forthright was actually being like a, like a daisy in the wind for these guys. You know, they were, they were all about what you're going to do, how quickly can you solve it? The dry liner is arriving tomorrow. I can't have you faffing around with what stud size you're going to specify, Mr. Architect. You know, oh, you want this type of paint? Well, you can't have it. You have to have that one. It was it was a bit like being thrown into the ring and being punched about a bit. And and then you sort of end up being given a, a platform and a huge and difficult learning curve that you, you end up coming out swinging and you realize that that directness and that willingness to solve problems quickly that perhaps would hamper you in a consultant 
environment where you always have to very carefully manage all the entities around you. You know, that's not really suited to someone who's so keen to resolve problems in a, you know, in a direct and uncompromising manner. So I guess that's where I found a, you know, a sympathetic here. So again, that, that brings us then right up to now to your present employer with Northacre. Tell me a little bit more about how those earliest days and how that transition came about. Well, when uh, Northacre came knocking, it really was, I guess, due to the synchronicity that was there between the job that I was currently engaged with at Square and Partners, which was 20 Grosvenor Square, and the synchronicity they had at the same time with Palace Street. And I think the, f- the first couple of months at Northacre, a lot of it was spending adjusting to the new environment where I would go to meetings to my ex-practice and deal with the teams that are full of people that were my colleagues in the past and now having to form myself in, a, in, in quite a different role. So a lot of that was essentially at the very beginning, just learning the ropes within Northacre, how the company structure is organized. It's, it's a lot uh, looser. It's a lot more relaxed. Um, there's a lot more autonomy, but you are also expected to absolutely, you know, pull your own weight. And I guess development is a, is a relatively unsympathetic industry to wafflers and people who, you know, don't quite know what they're doing. That's why I think it was a relatively short time at Northacre. I, I was brought on as a, as a technical manager, and I think they soon realized that perhaps my wheelbarrow was still had capacity. And, and sure enough, it was it was loaded up with additional responsibilities and uh, and liabilities. And I guess that led to being uh, given the opportunity to act as the design and technical director for, for the firm. Now... How old are you at this point? I've just turned 40. Okay. So a relatively young uh, design director, notwithstanding the scale of the projects that you're, you're undertaking now at, at Northacre, and no doubt sort of the notoriety of, of schemes like One Palace Street, do you remember the lessons that you think you were having to learn at that, at that time to get up to speed as quickly as possible? I think that the challenge at Northacre really was, for me, Palace Street, like the previous uh, scheme that I was working on, is an enormously complex project. It's, it's a listed building with four retained facades, top-down construction of the frame, and you know a new-build facade, and essentially five different architectural styles of apartments. That is, you know, a, a different league of engagement. And because on 20 Grosvenor Square, I was the lead architect for the interiors. Here, suddenly I had to take on the mantle of managing and supporting the entire, the entire scheme. So obviously, the previous scheme was a bit of retained facade and a new build. This was now, you know, the next league up, which was the listed building, you know, different facades. And, and all these elements intermarrying is, is a hugely complex project. In fact, it's probably never say never, but it's probably the most complex project that I will ever work on. I mean, the only thing that's missing, literally the only thing that's missing on this scheme is an underground, you know, it's a Victoria line type arrangement, three meters underground. That's the only thing that could make it, you know, more complex outside of the scheme being built on a fault line. So it was it was a challenging transition, but a lot of the challenges and a lot of the issues that we're experiencing on Palace Street, at least from the point when I arrived, when the frame was, you know, half built, were so analog with the ones that we had in 20 Grosvenor Square. It was, I think I could call it a consolidation phase 
more than an acceleration phase, to be honest. I think where things got really interesting really quickly at Northacre were the fact that there's a, a, another large project in the pipeline, which is just further down the road in Victoria, uh, which is the old Scotland Yard building, which is a Broadway. Now, Northacre having a massive legacy to live up to. I mean, this is 35 years of reviving buildings and building, you know, building buildings that are retained facades. Again, you know, the complexity is is, is staggering here. And and moving into a into a territory of a, of a new build with the basements in an incredibly constrained island site in the middle of Victoria. When I joined, that scheme was you know in the in the nascent days of uh, contract negotiation and uh, appointment of of uh, principal contractor. So, in terms of professional growth, that really is where it, it was a good place for me to be because I I could ply my trade. On, on Palace Street with something that I had, you know, obviously in a different guise and lesser complexity done before, but I was quite comfortable at with being exposed to something radically new, like negotiating a contract. And this really is the challenge, the, the exposure that I wanted to experience. So it was a very different type of exercise from being an architect at a consultancy, because you're suddenly dealing with matters of contract and clarifications, and you're sort of having to set up the job for something that will be happening three, four years down the line. And I think that really was a, a, an, an enormous learning curve for me. And I was you know, very privileged to have been afforded the opportunity to work on two schemes like this, as well as having a sort of finger in the in the pipeline pie, which was still going in the feasibility, viability stages. So really, it was a draining, but enormously rewarding first year, year and a half. We touched on it a bit before about sort of how much you've achieved in a relatively sort of short, short period of time. Were there anyone who, who reacted to that negatively? Was there anyone who wasn't always as supportive? I don't know. I... I... <laughs> I couldn't really answer that with a with a with a yes because if there were instances where someone had a funny quip about moving to the dark side or you know some some you know other nonsense like that it's sort of just brushed aside and you know move on you you really can't afford to have too much attention paid to naysayers or someone that would that would try to detract from the enormous privilege and opportunity that you've been that you've been afforded so if there had been encounters like that they're not ones that would have penetrated the skin to be honest with you okay and i asked you earlier about what was it about the client side that had attracted you to it now you're there now it's a reality how does that compare up to the uh, the impression well if we if we go back to the five phases i think and and i i have been accused of you know being an arrogant architect in the past because i always tend to draw everything back to its basics. You know, if you're building a building, you're basically talking about architecture and the entire life cycle of the building is what interests me as an architect. So I think I wouldn't really make too great a distinction about consultant side, client side. I don't think that's something I put a lot of thought into. I think it's more to do with growing as, a, as an architect, growing as a professional. It's enormously beneficial to encounter people and have very close contact with people that are outside the immediate sphere of design and construction because you're dealing with people who are 
and you're exposed to people who are dealing with marketing, with with PR, with with sales, with with aftercare, hoarding, and there's a whole host of of ancillary activities that have to happen to make a piece of architecture successful nowadays. And that is something that, you know, if we want to bring it back to, you know, client side, consultant side, that's something that's been an eye opener and, and rewarding to be, you know, exposed to and allows you to learn a lot more about how a, you know, how a building functions, how a piece of real estate lives and breathes from inception to, to completion. It's a mind boggling journey in a way and, and one that I still have to sort of remind myself that it's not, it's what we do is definitely not easy. In fact, you know, I've got some friends in advertising whose, whose projects, you know, durations, uh, you know, she complained to me a couple of years ago, but oh my God, I've had this really long project that we're dealing with. It took us three months to get it from start to finish. And I just sort of, you know, sort of leaned back and thought to myself, my God, three months, you know, there's nothing in, in architecture and real estate that takes less than three, four, five years, especially with projects as, as complex and demanding as we have with Northacre. And now this situation we're dealing with, with you know, COVID and, and site shutdowns, and it's a, an enormously complex machine. And it forms part and parcel of this bringing a building to life. And it's, in a way, fascinating to see how all these little cogs work together to bring a, an amazing development to life and to the market and ultimately to the end user. There's a lot of very hard work from very talented people that goes into building that building that you you walk past down the road and think, oh yeah, you know, I could have done that facade better. But you get this appreciation for the depth and the complexity working client side that you don't see as a consultant, because again, you're just involved with a couple of the phases of the whole thing. And it's humbling. It's humbling to see, you know, what an amazing profession we're in. And, you know, sometimes you, you walk past one of these buildings and you have one of these eureka moments where you're standing there thinking, you know, my God, I'm involved in this. How privileged, how fantastic is this? That's a really rewarding thought that makes the years and years of graft and effort, you know, worth it. Well, that brings me on to something that I've been thinking about as, as I've been listening. Your professional career, certainly of, of recent, from 20 Grosvenor Square to Number One Palace Street and now Broadway, certainly positioned you as, as being firmly in the super prime of central London residential. But you also talk very passionately about the use and these projects not being, it's not the grave of a project because you've reached practical completion. It's only the, the realisation of that of that design, right? But in the super prime market, I think sort of a lot of people would accuse, they're not homes, these are buildings. These are often just commodities to some people. So how do you marry that up? Or do you, or do you have some, uh, do you have some, let's say, sort of affinity to that? So I'm going to quote Michael Squire here, who at the topping out ceremony of 20 Grosvenor Square said, obviously far more eloquently than I can repeat now, but he said something along the lines of London as, a, as an organism, as an entity is vast. There is place here for everyone. So if we are taking the question that you've just asked from a moral point of view, is it right to be putting together a product, putting together a piece of architecture that will be used as an asset? I think the answer to that is that's part and parcel of what, you know, not just London, but also New York, you know, Tokyo, Moscow, that, that's what they're about. It's a mirror of, a, of the human condition, which is what it is. If we're looking at the question that you've asked from a design perspective, these buildings, you know, super prime developments are often buildings that occupy prime spots in a city. They're often draw through traffic and, and tourism and, and locals, and you're involved with 
these symbols in space that are these buildings that you generate. And it's it affords you the opportunity to impact so many more people with the decisions that you make with a spatial configuration and the architecture. If we're skinning a question from a professional growth and just, you know, purely a, an aesthetic and, and technical perspective, these buildings, because of, of the locations where they are, offer an unparalleled challenge to, you know, making sure that you respond to not only the target audience, but to the planners and to people working in these environments. And it's a, you know, again, it's an enormously complex machine that you have to deal with of interest and of aspirations. And that complexity really is something that I, I don't doubt that what we're doing is, 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 is amazing architecture. I think if we go back to what Michael Squire said, obviously there's a feeling that, you know, super prime hotels in city centers and residential are something that, you know, a, a sort of a blue collar or a white collar approach would be, you know, it's, it's something of an excess. It's something that's perhaps not necessary, but analyzing what Michael said, I fully agree that's part and parcel of what makes these cities so interesting. And we would be poorer as a, as a society, as, as a culture, if, if we didn't have these. Well, then that, that leads me on to the final question, because just as a recap to the, the listeners, and the reason why I, th- I think it is, it's quite important is that you've built a career then in consultancy. You've joined one of the, the leading developers, certainly in, in London, and transitioned from being sort of an operative to being a, a director of that business. You've met obviously obstacles th- throughout this, and whether it's personal drive or other means, you've always overcome those. What's next? I suppose where we are now, given the situation that we find ourselves in in the UK with Brexit looming and and COVID, we've embarked last, you know, or this March rather, on a very chaos-strewn and a very chaotic journey of the UK's life, which undoubtedly will impact the London real estate market. To what extent is anyone's guess? I, you know, I have high hopes for for London, and as uh, Niccolo, our CEO, likes to say, him being Italian, we are, you know, we, we are all betting on Britain. So I would like to think that uh, what's next is more opportunity to bring to life amazing buildings, perhaps in the UK, perhaps elsewhere, whether it's a North Acre growth or other elements of the the group that take precedence to allow for shifting market demands. That's something that remains to be seen. But certainly, as one of my younger colleagues pointed out to me just yesterday, chaos always brings opportunity. And that's something that, uh, you know, we all have to be alive to and face the, the coming wave of doom and gloom with a, you know, with a BDI open for that silver lining that will will bring opportunities. And we are about to enter an enormous phase of transition. If you think just what the entire society has gone through with this whole shift from office work to working from home, I mean, there's a lot of things going on very quickly. And for instance, where we were looking at the prime residential market starting to go you know, into a downturn, we started seeing the office and the commercial market having a great upturn just before you know, March. So it's so Q4 to 19, Q1 2020. And then obviously with COVID, that's just crashed. So now we seem to have two strands in the industry going into a, a bit of an adir. So there has to be something that picks that up. There has to be a, a use that we can identify that has to be an opportunity for us as architects and developers and professionals in real estate to identify the challenges that society will be facing you know, in the next 5, 10, 
50 years and to try and make sure that we are ahead of the curve in not only identifying these, but providing solutions for and, you know, be there at the ready to, to make things happen. So I think in summary, it's definitely going to be a period of extremely busy and will require a lot of diligent brainstorming to see what's next, to identify opportunities, to grab hold of them and um, go after them and pursue the next upturn. Well, Jan, I'll, I'll draw it to a close there, mate. But thank you so much for your time on this. I have really, really enjoyed this conversation. And I don't think it matters whether you're an architect or a project manager or an engineer. I think people can learn an awful lot about that drive and that determination that not only allowed you to start your career, but obviously that it's continued to fuel it as well. So thank you again. Thank you very much, Nick. This podcast was brought to you by McDonald & Company, the leading real estate recruiter. To discuss any matters with Nick Carman, please contact him via the email address in your show notes. And don't forget to subscribe to receive the latest episode as it's released.